The Energy Gang Live is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the US residential market, and a top five supplier to the US commercial market. The company's active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit solaredge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. And this week, we are live at GTM's Grid Edge World Forum in San Jose, California. I am Stephen Lacey, a managing editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome. This week, will Tesla acquire Solar City? Yesterday, news broke that Tesla's board offered $2.5 billion to buy Solar City. We'll give our take on what an acquisition would mean for both companies and whether shareholders will bite. Then, will the energy smart home ever materialize? We will look at the failures and successes in home energy management. And finally, a sober look at fuel cells. Is there any love or respect for them anymore? Speaking of love and respect, I, I can't speak for sobriety though, uh, are my two co-hosts who are with me every week. Catherine Hamilton is a partner with 38 North Solutions. She's usually based in Washington, DC, and she was kind enough to miss her son's graduation to be here with us all. Hey, Catherine. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yay, Henry, congratulations. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> He's watching the live stream right now, okay. yeah. <laughs> From New York City, it's Jigger Shah, who is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. How are you? Good. Hey, did we get a salary? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that in negotiations after in the back room. And, uh, you know, your son is, is not even a year old now, so no graduations to miss. Exactly. Our special guest is the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media, Eric Wessoff. And uh, I will preempt Eric's comments. Eric likes to remind people that he was the first employee of Green Tech Media and also the 22nd. <laughs> um, thanks for having me. I, I'm in awe of what you guys do every week and, and the depth of your knowledge. Uh, the management of Green Tech Media has tried to keep me away from a live mic for eight years and finally, finally it's going to happen. Hopefully good things will happen. Yeah, you, you badgered <laughs> me enough so we decided to hand over the mic. We've got a lot to cover and let's start off with Tesla Solar City. Uh, Everyone is speculating about this news. Yesterday, Tesla offered to buy SolarCity for $2.5 billion. After the markets closed on Tuesday, Tesla unveiled this plan to buy up America's residential solar installer, and it completes, according to Elon Musk, completes his vision of selling electric cars, batteries, and solar under one roof. The question is, will it be completed? The deal started weighing on Tesla's stock immediately in after hours trading and in trading this morning. And many people believe this is a distraction for Tesla, which already has its hands full trying to meet high demand for the Model 3 and build out the Gigafactory. Musk no doubts believes in the value of the deal, but now he needs to convince shareholders and that may not be easy. So time for the hot take. Let's talk about the risks and rewards of this proposed deal. Before we begin, Catherine, I want to get your response. And I do know that you have a bit of disclosure on this one. Yeah, so Tesla's one of my clients. Um, and I work on policy for electric vehicles, but also on the energy storage side for them. So I'm presuming that you don't have any insider information on this deal then? <laughs> no, I'm very curious because um, most of their energy storage that we're working on is grid scale. So it, it's all partnerships with utilities. 
and I don't think that that will change. So everything that they're announcing is about behind the meter application. And so I'm just not sure how this, how the grid application is going to fit into that because behind the, behind the meter applications, yes, you can use solar and combine EVs and the power wall, but the power pack, which can be scaled to megawatt scale, um, you still need something to generate energy for that, and that's not the home rooftop. So I'm not sure exactly what, how the vision is going to move forward. Yeah, I think a lot of people are asking themselves that question this morning. Eric, you were on the reporter call yesterday. Elon Musk tried to explain his thinking behind this. What did he say? Well, he uh, tried to uh, insist that this creates an integrated, fully, a fully integrated company um, and that Tesla has always been a sustainable energy company, not a car company, not a car company. Um, what he tried to explain was that now um, a customer can go into a store and buy a car, a solar system, and an energy storage backup. So to some extent, he's solving a little bit of a solar city problem of customer acquisition, right? There is that potential. Which is a big problem because customer acquisition costs keep going up for solar city. Absolutely. Whether or not going into a store to buy your car, your energy storage system, and your solar panels makes sense, um, I'm sure you'll, you'll give us an opinion. But w one thing from the call that was evident, and it was a little odd, was um, Lyndon Rive, who's the CEO of Solar City, you could feel his body language through the call. You could, you could feel his body language through the call. Um, he was not happy, and he sounded like a man sadly coming to grips with the $70 million of options that will immediately turn to cash the day that an acquisition happens. <laughs> so he didn't sound happy enough for a man who just got $70 million wealthier. I think $77 wealthier. million is the $77 million yeah. wealthier. Um, so I, I can understand the... the the integration of these companies making sense from a long distance standpoint, but boy, uh, there's going to be shareholder hell to pay. Jigger, does this make financial sense for Tesla? Well, you know, there's, there's always positives and negatives about all of these things. Um, on the positive side, I think what Elon was trying to say is that, you know, they have 300,000 Model 3 uh, depositors, and SolarCity sells 100,000 residential systems a year, and so you could see how the synergy between electric vehicle owners and solar owners um, sort of like reverberates off of each other and ends up getting, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are people who think that electric vehicles will represent 10% of U.S. auto sales soon, and so that means that, you know, you're talking about a million, million and a half people buying electric vehicles, right? And so, so there is a synergy on that side. I think on the other side, which, you know, Catherine alluded to, um, the thing about Tesla is no matter how um, you know, how like sort of out there uh, Elon Musk gets, Tesla is a universally good thing for electric utility companies, right? They don't know what the hell they're doing on, on helping to bring about the electric vehicle revolution, but they know that they want to sell more electricity. And they know they want to upgrade distribution substations. They know they want to upgrade all this hardware in the, in the distribution system that you know, needs upgrading if 15 people are charging Teslas at the same time. So this universally loved product, regardless of whether they like the way he presents it or not, is sort of now mixed with SolarCity, who basically is responsible for a lot of the anti-utility vitriol at, at Task and all these other places around the country, right? And, you know, this sort of DG and hatred of DG and all these other things. And so you've got those two cultures coming together. 
And then on the other side, I would say, I mean, just on the raw financials with SolarCity, I do think that there's a West Coast, East Coast phenomenon going on here, where the West Coast is sort of like, financials? What financials? Who cares? As long as we're growing at 50% a year, we don't care. Um, why don't you just love me? Um, and that's also a uniquely know, Elon Musk thing. I mean, he right. doesn't give a damn about the markets necessarily when it comes to his long-term vision. Whereas the way the East Coast views this is, you know, SolarCity is selling 100,000, let's say, units a year. They get roughly four bucks a watt for that between the sales of the tax equity to U.S. Bank, the debt from the securitizations, and then the recent sale of the sponsor equity to John Hancock, they clear like four bucks a watt. Their stated cost all in is maybe 220. So that's a dollar 80 a watt of cash flow that they're cash flowing. So on $2 billion, they're actually cash flowing $800 million. Now they lost $700 million last quarter somehow. So there's clearly like a lot of money being spent on this and that and some other initiatives and, and et cetera. And I can't imagine that within this merger that Elon's gonna shut down any of those other initiatives just because he loves technology like the best of them. Yeah, and the policy pathway is really different now because um, if you have the EV policy pathway is the dealership state issue, and I'm not sure what the selling of other products does to that, like how that changes mm -hmm. it. Um, but on the federal side, the EV uh, tax credit of $7,500, a car, you know, uh, maxes out, and then there's a little bit of a runway at 200,000 cars per company. So that's an issue when you're selling 400,000 cars already. Um, but, and, but it's a clear pathway. The other issue is on the grid energy storage side and with utilities, you need to figure out how to value all the different benefits that storage provides, and that's through FERC or through state regulatory proceedings. But once you get into the behind the meter side and you're talking about storage and solar, that gets a lot gnarlier because Solar city has been pushing so hard for net metering, and I'm not sure how that works when you start adding other products in like EVs and storage. Yeah, I agree that there's a, a tension there. So let's talk about the cars. Tesla received 400,000 pre-orders for the Model 3. I think they've been whittled down to about 375,000 now. This is a real car company if they can scale up to meet those orders. I mean, they have to, we talked to Dana Hull of Bloomberg on one of our shows when, we, when they unveiled the Model 3 and she said, this is a company that has to scale up every piece of its business now to meet this demand. They're coming off of the heels of problems with the Model X. They can't have problems with the Model 3. And now Elon says, oh, well, now we're just going to buy a solar company. This seems like a major distraction. If I'm a financial analyst, I definitely see this as a major distraction. To Elon Musk, who has always talked about electric cars, battery storage, and solar, in the same sentence and always believe that they should be under the same roof, this does make sense when you know what his long-term vision is. But I just I can't see how this helps in any way as Tesla tries to scale to uh, you know, build the Model 3. No, this, I mean, this feels like a purely emotional decision. I, I actually saw part of this coming a few months ago when, when SolarCity's stock price really tanked. Mm. Um, Elon made it very clear that he thought that, that SolarCity should go private. Right, I mean, he made that very clear. And so, when did he say that? I don't, I don't recall. This him was right that. when I think the stock price lost like 20% or something after a quarterly call, and he said this stock is undervalued. The markets just don't appreciate the story, and we should take the company private. Right, and so, you know, I don't think he necessarily knew that he was going to buy the company at that point. Um, and there's also, you know, I, I mean, the one thing I think that's going to come out of this, which you know, Eric made, you know, made clear in his comments, is that. 
there does seem to be this overshadowing of Linden mm. by Elon on a regular basis, even though Elon's not really involved in SolarCity, you know, day to day. Um, and I think that this is going to create a dynamic that it'll be interesting to see whether they can actually retain Linden um, in the role um, if this merger were to occur. And it's not clear to me whether there's, you know, like sort of room for all of those people within a merged company. Um, if you're new, if you're, if, if you're not a Californian, go to Palo Alto, drive around Palo Alto today. The place is lousy with Teslas. I don't think it makes sense to bet against Elon Musk at this point. The, the guy has a vision. He's not a nihilist. He, at least the guy has a, an incredible vision. He's not worried about three-month earnings. He's thinking about grand schemes, 10-year plans, and getting us to Mars. Um, I, I wouldn't bet against Elon. Right, but when you think about that persona, right, whether it's Theranos, and their CEO, or whether you think about Steve Jobs. I mean, the thing about Steve Jobs is that, you know, he didn't really have to deliver, you know, sort of, that's why he hired Tim Cook, and Tim Cook sort of delivered and made sure that iPhones just showed up in 5,000 stores, you know, simultaneously. Um, but he actually had a product that cash flowed, right? They had 50% gross margins, people paid cash, it came into his bank account, he was happy. Um, Elon's not there. I mean, Tesla has to spend billions of dollars to get the Model 3 out the door. Um, and, you know, they are shipping 2,000 cars a week now, which is what they're claiming, which is pretty amazing. I mean, running at 100,000 car a year run rate. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, it's, I, I think the comparisons fall short because, because I do think that at some point you run out of room, right? You run out of um, investor interest. Um, and, you know, this brings that closer, right? Now that Tesla is mixed with SolarCity, or will be mixed with SolarCity, you could see a ton of short interest in the stock um, accelerate. Yeah, so I think we have to draw a parallel to Sun Edison here. And, you know, Tesla is now, you know, the combined negative cash flows will be in the many billions. Uh, this company's taking on almost two and a half billion dollars in debt to finance this acquisition. We've seen this story before. And we saw a company fly close to the sun, try to make all these acquisitions, talk about being this next generation energy company, and do way too much. And when Sun Edison finally attempted to acquire Vivint Solar, investors said, absolutely not. This deal doesn't make any sense. You're way too far away from your core business. I feel like the same thing might unfold here. Hmm. Does anyone agree that there's a parallel between what happened with Sun Edison and what may happen with Tesla, assuming that there's a significant negative reaction to this, which we have already seen? Well, they were one of my clients, too. Um, <laughs> that's the, Wait that's a the parallel, yeah. <laughs> Better get a salary. Let's be clear, they're doing an amazing job on the policy side. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. I, I mean there, the other parallel is Sun Edison did move its headquarters from East Coast to West Coast, right? I mean, I do think that there is this fever on the West Coast of grow, 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 even though we're an infrastructure play. I mean, SolarCity doesn't have higher acquisition costs because um, they're not good at acquisition. They've got higher acquisition costs because that last person that they're acquiring costs too much, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why SolarCity has, has brought back guidance twice to try to get to their, the core um, growth rate that really is something they can do on a creative basis. And so, and I do think that, you know, unlike the Sun Edison stuff where they were really focused on utility scale and then potentially CNI projects, um, you know, Tesla really is focused on consumers. Right? And SolarCity is focused on consumers. And so there is a parallel there. Um, and you can see, I mean, I clearly see um, 
you know, a lot of synergies around their sales and marketing approach. I don't know that the dealerships are where I see that, but I do think that the two things that sell themselves, right, are electric vehicles and solar power, right? You know, nobody wants to do energy efficiency, nobody wants to do heat pumps, nobody wants to do all these other things, but people love talking about electric vehicles and people love talking about solar. So from that perspective, there's a lot of synergy on the residential side. Aren't you financing heat pumps right now? I do. That's why I finance these kinds of things is because they're out of favor mm. from the rest of the market. But, um, but from that perspective, there is synergy here. Eric, what do you think? Do you think that the, that crossover matters? I mean, one can imagine a certain class of customers going into a retail store. Now Solar City, well, assuming this acquisition goes forward, Solar City would have retail space. You have a lot of names of people coming through interested in vehicles. So you could do some cross-selling. But I can't imagine that it would be a lot of customers. I mean, I, I, would seem, I would think that many of the customers already going into a Tesla store may already be interested in, in Solar City, and may, they might be able to get names through different customer acquisition means. Well, if you, if you own a Tesla, it's an indication that you have too much money. So <laughs> there's the potential that, that, they will, that, that, that people will, will spend some of that Silicon Valley um, money on that little rounding error of, of adding a solar system to your roof. Right. Well, one thing I was talking to someone last night about this, um, common to the behind the meter system and the grid scale system on the car is the form factor that's in the battery. So they could essentially just become, you know, Tesla focus on manufacturing batteries um, and getting the cars right. But Solar City knows how to do the solar piece. Mm. Which they are doing already. I mean, Tesla has really sort of pulled back on selling batteries. I mean, they're sort of going through partners. The one thing I would say, though, is that I do think there's a killer app out there for all 50 states, given the extension of the ITC, around solar plus um, EV plus efficiency. And I do think there's a tremendous number of people out there who believe in climate change or believe in bragging to their neighbors about how awesome they are that, like, you know, here's a $70,000 thing that we just do. Um, it includes a Model 3, it includes a, um, a solar system, and it includes efficiency, and it all pencils. Yeah, one thing I'm slightly concerned about with solar city has been really strong on supporting grid alternatives and low-income models for solar, and I hope that doesn't get lost in this so that they're still doing systems for the underserved communities and creating jobs because they've been so strong on that. Mm. Okay, we've got to move on. This will undoubtedly be another topic for a later show. Uh, quick mention of our sponsor. Thanks to Solar Edge for supporting the show. Solar PV systems, they're not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge saw that PV systems are more than just a solar module. It's an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now batteries and home load management devices. The inverter is the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems. On the horizon is a future where the smart solar edge inverter controls a smart home connected to the grid and to the cloud that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances. Solar PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and Solar Edge plans to own this future. Find out more at SolarEdge.com. And now for a little dose of reality, because we're going to talk about the smart home. And there is a lot of interesting activity in this space. But the smart home, as many thought of it, just hasn't materialized yet. You know, for the last decade, companies have been dreaming about the connected home, a place where smart devices and distributed energy and market signals come together to create this seamless, customized energy experience for consumers. 
It's a great dream. We talk about it at conferences like this. But one could argue that it's just as far away as it was a decade ago. Over the years, we've seen startup after startup flounder. We've seen the tech giants, companies like Google, Microsoft, and Apple fail to gain traction. And the result is only 6% of American households have a smart home device. And that includes everything, you know, smart TVs, smart appliances, energy systems, whatever. Even Nest, once the darling of the smart home industry, has come under fire for its incrementalism in product design, now that it's a piece of Google. There's no doubt that this space has enormous potential, but what will it actually take to realize that potential? Eric, you've been covering this space for a long time. I think GTM has been fairly skeptical of some of the offerings, particularly from the large tech companies. Can you give us kind of a brief history of the failures in this space? Sure. Um, first of all, uh, GTM it, it has been covering this, but uh, our reporter, Katie Tweed, is really the reporter who's been covering this. So I've just been reading her material for the last eight years. Um, <laughs> uh, betraying my age, back in the late 70s, I worked as a salesman in a company called Lafayette Radio Electronics, not important. And one of the things I sold at that, at that small, uh, at that electronic shop was an infrared home energy management system. You took a little box, you plug it into the wall, and you plugged your appliance into that little box. And with an infrared controller, you were able to tell your lights to shut off, to schedule, you could, ske you could schedule your lighting, you could schedule whatever you could plug in. Needless to say, nobody in this room has that product, and very few people bought that product, and it ended up in the kitchen drawers of everybody who bought that product. Fast forward 30 years, um, companies like uh, Google with their power meter, Microsoft with their home product, Tendril, a number of, of, of thermostat companies have all attempted to get into this market and even with Google having Ed Liu, an astronaut, fronting the, the effort, they had, to, they had to kill that effort. Microsoft had signed up 72 customers, the same 72 people who bought the Zune, <laughs> and they killed that product. Tendril has had to do a major pivot on their product. So, Things haven't changed since I worked at Lafayette Radio Electronics in the late 70s, but I, I want to add one, one point. I was at a meeting five years ago, a bunch of VCs in, in the room, along with Tendril's CEO, Adrian Tuck, and they, they canvassed the, um, the Tesla buyers in, in that room, and um, it turns out that every single person in that room had an electric bill of greater than $1,000 a month. They, they, they talked about that. Um, so I think maybe if you, I think it's still a rich person's toy. If you are, have a $1,000 a month uh, electric bill to run your pool pump, the uh, elevators in your garage, and your rotating wine cellar, and you have a $1,000 a month um, uh, electric bill, maybe being able to play and save a couple hundred dollars a month makes sense. But if you're only going to save me 10% on my electric bill, and I'm a regular consumer without a pool pump and a wine cellar, I don't, I don't care that much. So I know you didn't ask for my opinion. You asked for a history, and I, I gave you my opinion. I want as many opinions as you can okay. give us. Okay, all right. So um, one, last, one last thing. There is, uh, you may have heard it before. I, um, I heard the CEO of Ecofactor talk, uh, John Steinberg, no longer the CEO of Ecofactor, um, talk about mean time to kitchen drawer. Every home energy product is something that's worshipped for a month, ignored for a month, and then put away in your kitchen drawer the next month, and I don't know of any product that's changed that paradigm. What, the Nest smoke detector didn't change that? <laughs> uh, Jigger, has anything changed? I mean, you know, Eric, what Eric described was 
the first iteration of home energy management, which we really saw scale up, you know, 12, 10 years ago, where people thought, we're going to have these displays in people's homes where they're going to monitor their own energy use, and they, you know, they develop the hardware themselves. Consumers bought very few of them, and it turns out that consumers really don't care about shaving pennies off their energy bill or a few dollars per month off their energy bill, and they're certainly not going to invest in a big piece of hardware. So then we saw a shift into analytics, and then you saw with the rise of Nest and other cool smart home devices, people were very device-centric. They, they moved away from the displays and moved into specific devices that consumers might want. Now, with Amazon's push for Alexa, with Google's uh, push for its own you know, voice-automated smart home device, we kind of see this push back into the hardware space, and consumers still aren't buying them. So has anything changed? Well, I mean, I've, like Eric, have been skeptical about this space since Bill Gates did that big unveil in the 90s on his own house, right, and how he created a smart home for his own house. I, I do think that things have changed. I think entrepreneurs have gotten smarter. <clears throat> and the most successful entrepreneurs, I think, are selling the ability to make sure your garage door is closed or the ability to make sure that your, your home is locked or, you know, the ability to make sure that... Um, that you can turn up or down your heater, air conditioning when you're on vacation and, or when you're leaving the office, right? And so, I mean, I do think that there's an axiom that I've lived by for a long time, which is that, you know, you should be selling pain medication, not vitamin pills, because, you know, people take their pain medication and they rarely take their vitamin pills. And so, um, I think for a long time, people have been selling this as vitamin pills. It's sort of like an interesting thing. It's, it's great. It, you know, make you feel a little bit better about yourself. Um, but I think we are now moving to a pain medication method where you're saying, here are the things that people really care about, people really want, um, and people really like will pay for. Um, and then the energy savings are just a sideshow to the core, right? I mean, if you're really buying it because you can shut your garage door um, if, you th if you think you accidentally left it open. Yeah, I think there are two ways to look at this. I remember back in the early days of Smart Grid and ComEd sent iPads to their consumers that would help them, and they got freaked out and mailed them back <laughs> because they're like, I don't want the utility, like an iPad from the utility in my house. So I think two things have happened. One is the consumers have changed because they're so used to apps for their lifestyle. So that's what Jigger is saying is like a lifestyle app would then enable you to do other things, but it's not really about energy. And the other thing is utilities. So a lot of these companies like Tendril have now pivoted to say, utilities, this is what you should have, not what do you want. Right. Mm. And utilities mostly are contacted for two reasons, outages and high bills. And those are not positive experiences. So if you can have a company come and say, utility, this will help you engage with your consumer in a positive way, you know, maybe that's the way in. Yeah, I agree. That's like the next iteration. I mean, consumers are used to mobile banking. They're used to um, buying things online. They have a really seamless mobile experience for a lot of other, uh, a lot of other buying areas, and they do not have that experience with the utility. And so, rather than just focus on savings, you see a company like Tendril pivoting and saying, "Well, customer care is really important, and we're going to design an app that looks like any other." chat-based and push notification-based app that consumers might use, for example, for banking. And that seems to be the new, the new iteration of the smart home space, where people are, are focusing on making the utility customer relationship better, not just energy savings. So let me, let me just jump in and, and give you a, a quick note on that. There's a company called Bidgely. They're not exactly a 
home energy management company, they, they, they call themselves a disaggregation company. They're able to sort of untangle your uh, plug load from just the meter data. And rather than learn about whether your refrigerator is working correctly or your pool pump, what they've found is, is that if they can find that the flat screen TV goes on at four in the afternoon when the kids are supposed to be doing their homework and not watching TV, that's an, that's an indic, that's, so they're not looking to save a dollar on the refrigerator, they're looking for a behavioral issue. All of a sudden they know that their kids are not studying, uh, they're watching TV. This has nothing to do with energy use, it has to do with behavior and, and knowing what's happening in your home. And that little piece of information is worth far more than the pennies or dollars that they'll save on their washing machine. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I think that the, but the flip side of this is, you know, at the sort of grid edge conference is, you know, at the time at which, you know, you have an Aliso Canyon, which, you know, we're sort of in the middle of now, um, are all these people with apps and stuff that's been installed because they want to actually help their kids, you know, do more homework or they want to figure out how to close their garage door, et cetera, also going to be able to, you know, have sort of an opt-out strategy where you, you know, by definition control their loads and, and do this because, you, you know, that's how you give them the app for free and the services for free. And then they have the opt-out capacity so that you don't, you know, they don't have to participate in the demand response programs if, you know, something occurs. Um, could you actually aggregate enough load, whether it's water heaters or refrigerators or LED, or, or LED TVs or whatever it is, to be able to be relevant? Um, to the utility companies and will the utility companies pay enough um, for you to, to run your business simply on their revenue streams so you don't have to stack eight different revenue streams to be able to make a profit, right? And, and I think that that's what we're going through now and time will tell, but I mean to date that hasn't worked out very well. There's one more thing that I think is different and that is we have a hell of a lot more solar systems installed around this country and you have a lot more people who are clearly interested in their energy use, they wouldn't be investing in solar, and you have smarter power electronics, you're starting to see mandates for more sophisticated power electronics, and you now have a platform for layering the analytics on, layering other energy services on, and that's completely different um, than 10 years ago. And you also have, you know, people are walking around with mobile devices, so you don't need the hardware. So you have the solar systems, and you have the mobile phones, and I think that those are very powerful tools for uh, building energy, energy services for the home on top so of So you're saying the inverter is the, the hub? Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. that's what you're saying. Is yeah, basically. The inverter, yeah, uh, yeah. The sponsor, non-dependent, yeah, no, right? The, the, it, the inverter is the hub of, and the brains yes. of the, uh, okay. But that has not yet happened anywhere, right? Uh, uh, companies well, like yeah, we're en starting Enphase, to see Enphase has tried Hawaii to do that, and, but it right. hasn't happened yet. No, but that's because, not because the capability isn't there with Enphase and some of the other people or Solar Cities, you know, new programs. It's because I think your premise is wrong, Stephen. Like, I, I don't think solar company, solar customers actually care that much about energy, right? The vast majority of solar customers are like Wait saying, a second. no, they don't. They're saying this is the way for me to give my utility the middle finger, and I sort of feel good about that, right? Independent, Debbie Dooley, etc. On the other side, there are people who say, this is great because when I have a dinner party, I can show everybody my solar system and how much cooler I am than they are. It's the same thing that people did with the Prius, right? You everyone seen the smug episode on South Park. And, and it's, it's exactly the same thing. The vast majority of solar um, system owners do not check how well their solar system is doing after the first month. 
But that's a messaging issue, not a capability issue. So you can, as the solar company, you have that relationship with the customer, and then you can add other services on top no, of it. An all the solar companies it's, have been talking about this. They are all Sun Power talks about itself as an energy services company. Solar City says the same right. thing. Tesla is now saying right. we're not all a car company, bullshit. we're an energy company. All complete and utter bullshit, right? I mean, ultimately, when, when you think about the time to kitchen drawer, Right? The number of people who open up the app to see how well their solar system is doing after the first, first month drops off like 95%, right? And so, and, and so that's why I'm saying if you do an opt-out strategy, right? So if someone like SunPower were to go to customers and say, I will give you 5% interest financing if you let me control your refrigerator and, and you know, water heater loads, or I will give you all these benefits by you giving me this, and you don't have to care about energy, but I'm going to monetize this in the demand response program within the California ISO or some of these other things, and they make up even more money than they're giving you by doing that. That is a strategy that will work, but instead, these guys are too dumb to do that, and instead what they're doing is saying, let me educate you. Let me help you help yourself, and why don't you opt into these programs, and they are not opting into this program. That's why Solar City shut down their energy efficiency business. No, I, I mean, I completely agree that that was a failure, but what you see now are rate pressures. And with Hawaii trying to encourage self-consumption, uh, you know, Salt River Project in Arizona implementing a demand charge, other utilities considering uh, demand charges, minimum bills, whatever it is, and getting away from net metering, you all of a sudden have an incentive to encourage batteries, load controllers, so software to manage the devices. Like, there is pressure in the marketplace. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that these companies are necessarily doing a great job, but one cannot ignore the number of customers out there with solar systems or that want to invest in solar that are going to be under pressure and need these services. Well, the only way you're going to get customers to, to respond to TOU rates that are coming in California is by making it super easy, like through this new Nest time of savings product. And that's, that's Which the is only really way you're cool. going to get them to do it. Yeah. Okay, so we are running out of time. We've got to get to our third topic. And our third topic deals with one of Eric Wessoff's favorite phrases, the hydrogen economy. If you read his pieces at GTM, you'll know that Eric is one of the leading thinkers on the hydrogen economy, writing glowing pieces about how fuel cells are about to change the world. He has a particular fondness for bloom energy. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, if you, I recommend helping. you You're search fuel me, cells and Eric Wessoff uh, on the site at Green Tech Media or on, on uh, Google, and you'll find a long list of scathing pieces on poor company performance and the general hype around the technology. It has become the norm now to make fun of fuel cells, right? The technology of the future, and it always will be. But we actually, you know, we have an, a good amount of stationary fuel cells installed around this country um, at microgrids and corporate campuses. Um, so after decades of failed promises, what role will fuel cells play in the distributed energy transition? Eric, you do get the first word on good, this one. Um, why the particular disdain for fuel cells? Well, uh, so I think there's a rant about to come, come to happen here. <laughs> so just Twitter, be, prepared, be prepared. Um, Make sure you so say it I've, into the mic. I've been fascinated with fuel cells for 15 years. And when I first started looking at them, I, 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 was, I was enamored with them. And I studied and I studied. And so if you're following fuel cells, there will be three press releases you will receive minimum a year on fuel cells that will happen every year. One, the t Toyota Mirai is coming. Two, <laughs> your, your, your laptop will be powered by a little fuel cell uh, module from Toshiba that goes on the back of your laptop. You'll get that press release every year. And for some reason, forgive me, this is why they keep me away from a live mic because I, I veer into the scatological, you will be able to power your fuel cell with urine. That one comes up every year. I don't know why. 
Yes? Do you see that every year? No? Well, maybe it's me. I read a lot of press releases. Um, so for 150 years since the fuel cell has been invented, uh, there has not been a single profitable year, a single profitable company. And uh, that's not hyperbole. If you look at Ballard Power... Profitable company. Profitable, uh, public company, a profitable public company having a profitable year in the fuel cell industry has not existed. So the most amazing thing about the fuel cell industry is that they're able to attract equity and debt in an industry that has never thrown off a single dollar of profit. You'll have probably seen my list of profitable fuel cell companies, which we update regularly. Here's the list. That's the list. Awkward silence. Right. That's the list of profitable fuel cell companies. I, I think that if you talk to engineers at fuel cell companies, and I do, they love the engineering, but they are cognizant that this is never going to be a profitable device because of just the sheer difficulty of engineering that thing. Um, so I think that we've wasted a lot of money that could have gone to other technologies by with, with all of the money from uh, also, even in a highly subsidized situation, it can't even throw off a profit. And my last piece of the, the rant, um, as a testament to the, the sense of humor that the universe has um, and the goddess has, I live in, I live in a, a remote part of Silicon Valley. It's on Skyline Boulevard. It's in the Redwoods. It's beautiful and it's fairly remote. I, I, there's nothing around me. And the CEC has decided to install a fuel cell refueling area 100 feet from my house. There's nothing else. <laughs> There's nothing else in my neighborhood except redwoods and coyotes. Now we understand. And the CEC <laughs> is putting in a fuel cell refilling station on the top of Highway 35 and 84. That's karma. Nimby. Um And they don't even make their own hydrogen, right? There's a little hydro hydrolyzer there that's working on a, a, on a solar panel, but they really bring in tanks of hydrogen um, to fill this. Anyway, that's what I'll be. I'll re be reporting live every morning from that, that place in, 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 in the near future. <laughs> Jigger, what are your thoughts? Are fuel cells viable? Well, I mean, you know, Generate Capital has invested, you know, about $25 million um, with plug power. Um, I do think that the, uh, the specific niche application that they're in, which is replacing lead acid batteries, for forklifts, for Walmart in particular, but also now Nike and Home Depot and others, um, is really profitable, uh, hugely profitable, mostly because what Walmart will as say- As in the sense that they're making money? Because they're as, not. As in, as in the sense that, that the, the, um, the customer actually, um, the, the customer experience saves a lot of money, and I'm working with them on figuring out exactly how they make money. There is a way for them to make money. Um, they've been you know, too reliant on the federal tax credit that's hard to monetize. But I do think that there are applications like that where there's a huge opportunity. And in Walmart's case, they're saying it's the, it's the thing that they can do that provides the most amount of productivity enhancement at their distribution uh, you know, locations, which is a big deal for them to say because they're, they're so interested in productivity enhancement. You should have invested um, in Walmart instead of Plug Power then because well, they're going to be making I, money and Plug Power is not. I'm not I, I don't necessarily disagree there, but I think um, 
But I think the other, the other real benefit to fuel cells is that I think we're obsessed with battery storage a lot and generally speaking lithium ion battery storage is really for sort of 15 minute storage. Um, what fuel cells really can do is provide seasonal storage. So when you see very high penetrations of renewable energy on the California grid, what you could see is these electrolyzers at substations and then hydrogen tanks where you just store um, hydrogen and you might actually store it for like six or seven months because the, the uh, ability for them to hold the hydrogen lasts for a long time and then have a fuel cell at that particular area, right? And I, I do think that this constant drive and the same thing's true with battery storage um, for LCOE, you know, sort of uh, undermines real opportunity in the space, right? So, so from a system perspective, it could be valuable to put a fuel cell and an electrolyzer at every single distribution substation in California. Um, to pursue seasonal storage and to be able to load level the grid that way to deal with the duck curve and deal with all these other things much cheaper than it is to shut down Diablo Can Canyon nuclear power plant. Yeah, and DOE put out a market report last October that um, said in 2013 the global fuel cell market was 1.3 billion, 2014 2.2 .2 billion and they expect by 2019 for it to be 5.2 billion. And I think a lot of this is munis, um, certainly other countries in Asia, Japan, South Korea are taking, um, taking investments there. But also about 10% of Fortune 500 companies use fuel cells as reliable backup power. So you can see hospitals, people like Apple and Google and all these data centers. Um, airports, municipalities, re large retail businesses, they're all using them um, because they do generate and store and are able to provide some baseload right. that batteries aren't going to be able to do. Right. But to be clear, I mean, I think just, you know, siding with Eric on the other side of this, I think, you know, we talk, we've talked several episodes now about how the renewable portfolio standard has really been driving renewable energy. And the problem with Bloom in particular, but also fuel cells writ large, is that for power applications in the electricity grid, they're not better than combined cycle natural gas plants. And so their CO2 per kilowatt hour is actually worse than combined cycle natural gas plants. So if you're a governor who's saying, I want to get to a low carbon future, I don't see why you would carve out fuel cells. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for you to do that unless, and you know, it, even worse, I mean, Bloom just acknowledged that because fracked gas has a higher percentage of ethane, in the, the natural gas. Um, and ethane is C2H6. And so you have more carbon uh, to hydrogen ratio than CH4, you know, which is methane, um, that you would actually have a 5% reduction in their efficiency, uh, up to a 5% reduction in their efficiency, which would create even more CO2 per kilowatt hour, right? And so, so the one thing that frustrates me the most about Bloom, and I've had this conversation with KR directly, is that they refuse to do anything except ride the coattails of the renewable energy sector, right? They refuse to actually write a white paper that justifies their existence. There is still no white paper that says, here's why a governor, here's why a public service commissioner, here's why someone who cares about the planet should care about um, including fuel cells within an RPS. So uh, absolutely, they're, 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 they work on fracked fossil fuels. Um, additionally, to correct something that Catherine said, they're not used as backup. At least Bloom Energy is not used as backup. That is your primary source of power when you're, if you're at a data center or a hospital. Your primary, they're using that fuel cell as the primary 24-7 piece. It's, because, not, it's be, not used as a backup. Right. And because fuel cells have a far better 
um, power quality, right? That's why they're doing it. Most data center owners that I talk to say, we spec fuel cells because even if it's just a little bit more expensive, the power quality is so much better out of them that our equipment runs better. And you can combine them in a system with CHP and other technologies. Yeah. So, yeah. so on a system basis, it could be a smart move. Okay. Okay, so we've got to wrap this up, but Eric, I just want to go up to you and try to answer the question that I posed at the beginning. What role do fuel cells play in this distributed energy transition? Much uh, of one? As an oxidizer of cash. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. It is time to wrap up the show, and we are going to tell you something you may not know. And Catherine, I kick it over to you for your final story. Thank you. This is a little sad. Um, and a lot of you in the room already know about this, but our listeners out there may not. I wanted to honor the memory of Eric Gunther, who passed away over the weekend. He was um, the chairman, the CTO, and co-founder of Enernex. Um, he was an IEEE fellow, which is the highest level at IEEE. Um, he had patents. He did publish many, many papers. But more than that, he was, he put the smart in smart grid. He really did. And he didn't just put the smart in smart grid, he put the soul in smart grid. He was one of those guys who, who knew the best way to do smart grid. When I was at Gridwise Alliance, he was at the Gridwise Architecture Council, and billions of dollars were raining down from us on the stimulus. And, you know, one of the big issues is like, are we going to be able to spend this in a way that is smart? And he helped us do that because he was able to see what we needed to do in a way that made sense. Um, we all hoped he would be here. He was supposed to be here. We miss him desperately. I miss him. He never made me feel dumb in any way, um, and I will always miss him. Yeah, just extraordinarily sad. Thank you very much for that. Jigger, what's your story? So, um, so I rail about, you know, the cozy relationship between public service commissioners and utilities all the time, particularly in Nevada and Arizona. Um, what's different, though, now is that the FBI has decided that that, that cozy relationship actually exists, and so they have now formally opened a, a um, uh, a case uh, around the cozy relationship between APS and one of the commissioners um, on the commission, and they're going through all the text, et cetera. And I do think that, and I hope that this actually reveals, you know, what's been going on for years, and you know, sends a signal to Nehruk and the regulators who have been making money on the side from the utilities using, you know, sort of less than uh, moral and ethical sort of standards uh, to line their pockets. Um, it'll be a good thing to see. Um, you know, this practice end because I do think that that is what's holding back innovation um, in the marketplace. Eric, tell us something we don't know. Uh, we covered a little bit on, on an article recently uh, entitled uh, Dark Money and Deep Politics in Solar. Um, so I ha ha used to have a little skin in the, in the game in this particular matter, but uh, this is the week or next week that Next Era, that the Next Era and HECO acquisition will be um, formally decided on by the, the Hawaii PUC. Um, and my sources tell me that it's going to be either a two to one or a three to zero oh vote um, to squelch the acquisition or in, in, the, in the best case to honor it with some very onerous terms. And what's happened is um, we've wasted two years of regulatory nonsense um, and Hawaii still works on 80% of imported um, fuel oil and coal. Um, and uh, so I think it's a, in case you didn't know, uh, it's gonna happen this week or next week. It doesn't look like it's gonna go through. And for now, it's still uh, business as usual at HECO.
Yeah, Eric's written some good stuff on that on our website too. And Jeff St. John, uh, our grid reporter, wrote a fantastic piece on mergers and acquisitions trends in the utility space and talked about the HECO acquisition and, and uh, uh, the, the, the Pepco Exelon acquisition and so forth. Uh, I just have a brief anecdote from a conversation I had yesterday. Uh, in May, Oracle announced that it was going to acquire Opower. And I got on the phone yesterday with Oracle's SVP of their utilities business and with Dan Yates, the CEO of Opower. And they talked about, Dan talked about why it was necessary for them to become uh, a part of Oracle in order to scale and become the company that they wanted to be. And they, he, he, he said to me, you know, we knew that we either had to be the size of Oracle or we had to get bought up by Oracle. And turns out they were acquired by Oracle. And it's a really powerful lesson, I think, to me. When you talk to getting to the billion dollars in sales level, they're very, you know, most of the companies that are in this space are just not anywhere close to that. And so it's a long slog for the companies deploying software in the utility space. And I just think it's a powerful lesson from, from that conversation. And so I'll have a story up on that uh, tomorrow. So that wraps up our show. Thank you very much. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, Jigger Shaw, and Eric Wessoff were with me. You can find all our back episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud, uh, on NPR One, on any podcast app of your choice. Uh, we like to get feedback from listeners, so send us a tweet or an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com. And thank you all very much for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey with the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time.